Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Not going to lie, I'm kind of excited to preach Luke chapter 2, which is often known as like the Christmas story. I'm, I'm excited to do that when it's not Christmas, praise God. Uh, if you know me, you know that I despise Christmas time. I do. And judge me all you want. I love the baby Jesus. I just don't like Christmas. Uh, I worked at Kmart one year in college. Uh, and I enjoyed Christmas until that year. Um, Kmart, you know, because they start Christmas in September there, right? And so the same 20 Christmas carols are on repeat uh, at, when Kmart used to exist. Just on and on and on, these same carols for, for, for four months. And it just burned me out of Christmas. I'm just not going to lie. So I, I don't enjoy deck the halls and Christmas trees and lights and Mary. And I, I just don't enjoy that. But I'm really excited to preach Luke chapter 2 in March. Let's jump in. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So we've been walking through this beginning of this Gospel of Luke, right? We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for a, a year, at least, walking through this book, Luke, the writer, is, is writing to this, to this person named Theopolis, who's, who's some Greek dignitary. He's writing to him so that he can trust the message of Jesus, the message of the Messiah that, that is Jesus. And it's interesting, and, and each time we write, we, we go through these, these, these passages, I want us to think about, why would Luke include this? Especially next week, what we're going to look at next week is like, why... So it's kind of a random story. Why would Luke include this in his gospel? And so even looking at Luke chapter 2, all through the, Christ, the Christmas narrative here that we see are details that we don't find anywhere else in the gospels. And I've told you that one of the things that Luke says is he goes to the eyewitnesses to write his account. And so last week we looked at Luke most, most likely went to Mary to get information about the announcement that she would be pregnant with the angels. And again, it looks like today that he, he cited some sources and he's bringing us some accounts of, of what happened here. And let's just see if we can unpack and understand more why this is important to set up this message or this book about who Jesus is and what does his birth tell us about that. So again, Luke the historian, he sets the context for us. Uh, historians are able to know exactly the year or a couple of years that Luke is talking about because he talks about who the political leaders are. You'll notice Caesar Augustus uh, orders a census. Okay, now I told you last, last week that they are occupied, the Jews are occupied by Rome. Caesar Augustus is the emperor of Rome. He orders a census to be taken. Now, why would he order a census? So he can tax them more. Remember I told you, the Jews hated Rome. If you were a Jewish farmer, they take most of your income, and then with the money they take from you, they pay for their army, their military that oppresses you. 
So once again, Caesar Augustus, he has ordered this, uh, this, this registration, this census, so that he can know exactly how many people are in his empire so he can get more money. We're introduced to this guy named Caesar Augustus. His real name was Octavian. Uh, the, the, the word Caesar just means emperor, and Augustus means honored or esteemed. And so it's kind of this formal, like Caesar Augustus, the honored emperor. But his real name was, was Octavian. So what's interesting, and, and I don't think by accident, here's what Octavian brings to the Roman world. Before Octavian comes on the scene, the Roman world is spread out. They're, they're, they have occupied all this land, but there's no network of, of infrastructure to unite these lands together. Under this guy named Octavian or Caesar Augustus, he is committed to public works. That's his big investment to the Roman Empire. Now, why is that important? Because here's what he does. He commits his life to building roads that connect all of the Roman Empire to one another. Before he comes on the scene, it's difficult to travel from one place to another. He builds roads. Now, why is this important? If Jesus would have been born the generation before Caesar Augustus, he would have lived his life, died, and all of that story would have been very much isolated to one little area with no chance of it getting out to the rest of the world. Because Jesus comes right after the reign of Caesar Augustus, right at the end of the reign, he has just prepared all these roads. And now when Jesus raises, dies, and says to his disciples, go throughout the world and make disciples, they're like, okay, and we'll use these new roads to do it. It's very interesting. Looking at... Again, the big picture of history, the sovereignty of God in even the timing of when to bring Jesus into the world. The Bible says that the king's heart is like water in the hands of the Lord. And I believe that God in his sovereignty ordained Octavius to build this network of roads. He thinks to expand his Roman empire and God's like, yeah, we'll see about that. We'll actually make it to expand my Kingdom. Another interesting fact, if you think of history, um, in the 1500s, Martin Luther came on the scene. You guys heard of Martin Luther? You should, right? If not, Google it and read a little bit. Okay, Martin Luther comes on the scene with his message of faith, grace by faith. I'm sorry, grace through faith. That we are saved, not by some religious works that we've done, but by grace through faith is where salvation comes from. That was the message of Luther. And then, not only does he have that message, which is totally countercultural to the church culture in that day, because it is all based on what you do, he has this message of it's by grace through faith. And then what does he do? He takes this Bible that, that is written in Latin that no one can understand, and something that the church tells him not to do, he translates the Bible from Latin to the common language of German so that the masses can read the Bible and say, wait a second, wait a second. What you're telling us is not what's in here. Now, that happened in the 1500s, okay? What's that have anything to do with Caesar, Augustus, and all that? You know what happened right before Luther comes on the scene in the 1500s? The printing press. Once again, had not the printing press been invented the generation before Luther, that revolution would not have taken place like it did. But because I believe God's sovereignty said, hey, we're going to get a printing press going, and now I'm going to bring this messenger that's going to translate the Bible into the common language, and we're going to get it to the masses. It's interesting. I was thinking about this. 
the day we live in, right? The internet, technology, the fact that you could get on a plane today and be on the other end of the world in, in 10 hours. Question made me wonder, what's God up to? Because it seems like every time there's this big advancement in, in humanity, God is right there saying, okay, I'll use that. I don't know. I'm not telling you to build a bomb shelter and go revelation and get arm up. And I'm not telling you that. Just ask the question, what could God be up to? So we see that we get the time, the time period. And so it just so happened that Caesar ordered a census. It just so happened that Caesar built roads. But he, because he orders this census to be done, we have Mary and Joseph. We got introduced to them last week. They have to go to a place called Bethlehem. Okay, because that's the place where Joseph is from. And so they have to travel to Bethlehem. Now, here's the question. Why is this important? Again, this isn't coincidence. And I think the reason Luke is telling us this happens to say, do you see the hand of God at work here? Because here's the reality. If Caesar had not ordered that census, Jesus would have been born in Nazareth, which is where he is from. But because of the census, they travel about 70 miles to Bethlehem. Now, why is that important? Malachi 5.2, prophet from the Old Testament says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The prophet from the Old Testament said that when the Messiah comes, that Messiah will come from Bethlehem. So God moves the heart of this Roman emperor to say, hey, we're going to do a census at this time. And because of that census, Mary and Joseph have to go to Bethlehem. And now Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, thus fulfilling the prophecy in Micah 5.2. Verse 6. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I love, so I've told you, Luke, he's a historian, he's a physician, right? He's not a great poet or great writer, because it, like, think how, we've been building up to this, from the whole Old Testament to the beginning of Luke, like this arrival of this kingdom, this arrival of this Messiah, and here's the great poetic words we hear. Um, she gave birth to her firstborn son. It's like, come on, Luke, give us something. Like, give us some, like, you know, trumpets blaring, and no, no gave birth. He's like, I'm a doctor. I've done this a thousand times. She just had a baby. That's, that's what he says. But in some way, and, and we'll see this as we keep going, some way God, this spiritual, becomes physical, takes on flesh. We call it the incarnation, and I cannot wrap my mind around it. The idea that, that Jesus is fully God, 100% God, but at the same time, he's fully human, with this Jewish DNA, but yet he's God. Yeah, think about that the rest of the afternoon. So while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she has her firstborn son. She wraps him in swaddling clothes, you know, wraps him up tight, lays him in a manger because there is no place for them in the end. And it's, it's very interesting. There's all kinds of misconceptions now because of this little passage. And many of you have, have maybe, when you think of the Christmas story, have this idea in your mind, right? And if, if this idea is correct, there's, there's little baby Jesus on this little thing with some straw. 
right? And there's Mary and Joseph, there's some donkeys, correct? And sheep and uh, a drummer boy. I don't know where the drummer boy came in, but somewhere the drummer boy comes in and wise men and shepherd, you you guys picture it? We might be a little off. Let's try to unpack this a little bit. So she says that she laid him in a manger, and then this idea that, that, that and this is what I grew up hearing, that jo- Mary and Joseph come to Bethlehem because they have to go to this census, and, and you've seen the movies, and like they're walking up the mountain, and she's like, oh, Joseph, the time's come. I'm going to have my baby. And Joseph's scrambling around. He's like, oh, oh, i got to find a place to go, uh, right? I mean, we, we've heard this story. Uh, that's probably not quite how it went. That's why I want you to look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So Joseph, being this fiancé who's supposed to take care of his pregnant wife Mary, would have been a fool if he would have left nine months into her pregnancy and said, I'm going to make a 70-mile trek to arrive in Bethlehem. You've been a fool. No, here's what, here's what happened is they get there and they stay there with some friends or some family. And while they are there, meaning they're there for some time, it's time for her to have a baby. And so there's this myth that they arrived late at night and Mary's in labor. Uh, and, and then there's this idea that Jesus was born in a barn, right? With the donkeys and the sheep and all that. Um, probably not quite the case. We also have this image of this angry innkeeper, you know, so we picture Joseph with his pregnant wife and they come up and she's like, oh, I'm having a baby. And he's like, knocks on the door and the innkeeper's like, oh, no vacancy, get out of here, right? You've, you heard it. Probably not quite what happened here. Why? Let's understand the context. And, we, and as we look at the Jesus all through these gospels, we must understand the context that he's in. He is in the Middle East 2,000 years ago in a Jewish community Joseph, the father, is from that town. His family is from that town. Joseph was of the line of David, which means he's an important dude. He comes from an important family. He shows up in this village, and the idea that he would be cast out, especially with a pregnant woman, say, oh, no, no room, here's a barn, go in there, is ludicrous. It's crazy. Um, I, I spent... I spent some time in Africa, two or, three, two or three years, I would take a group of college students and we'd live in this village in Africa, and it's a Muslim village, but very much the, represents the hospitality and the culture that Jesus is born into here. So we would arrive in this village, eight of us, and this guy, they have no electricity, no running water, it's in the middle of nowhere, I mean, cut off from everything. Seven or eight Americans would arrive in, the, arrive in this village and we'd in, immediately be taken into this guy's courtyard he would move part of his family out of one little hut. So in the courtyard, they have about four or five huts where his family lived. He would have one of them, those family members, get out. He would give us the hut. For the next seven days, his wives, plural, would cook for us every meal. They would wash our clothes if we would allow them to. That's the hospitality of the Middle Eastern world. That's a hospitality that Jesus brought up. Have you guys ever seen the movie Lone Survivor? You guys remember that? The Navy SEAL that gets cut off, goes to this Middle Eastern village, and what do they do? They take him in, and they protect him, and some of them die trying to save this guest of theirs. That is Middle Eastern hospitality. And so the idea that, that Mary and Joseph, pregnant Mary, comes up and is like, hey, there's no room, sorry, here's a barn, is just, it's just, 
it just doesn't happen. Now, so here's the question. Well, wait a second, but it says they went to the inn, right? And there was no room for them in the inn. Well, how, how does that work? Well, here, we have to understand the word inn. Um, so there's, the, the Bible reads, there was no place for them in the inn. Now, that word inn, this, this written in Greek, by the way, that inn is the Greek word katalima, katalima. Uh, now, in the Greek, the word katalima is not the word for inn or hotel. It's actually the word for guest room. The NIV actually says, or here's what NIV says in Luke 2.7. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in clothes, and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Catalina. That's the inn. There's a different Greek word for hotel, inn, what you're thinking of when you hear the word inn. And that Greek word is pandokeon. And I did listen to that to see how it's pronounced. And I, I probably just butchered it, but I did listen to it. Okay, but none of you know Greek anyway, so it matters. So pande, keon. Uh, Jesus will use this word later in a parable, Luke 10, 34. This parable of, of the, the guy that takes, that takes care of this wounded man. He says he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, pando keon, and took care of him. That word inn is a hotel. The word in that we read in the Gospels of the birth of Jesus is not a hotel. It's translated guest room. Luke 22, verse 10, Jesus again will use this word that's, that's guest room or catalima. Here's what he says. He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Catalima, in. Where am I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. Again, let's look at the hospitality here. The disciples are supposed to go ahead. They're supposed to go to a guy carrying water and say, hey, the teacher wants to know where your guest room is. With the idea that the guy would say, oh, yeah, okay, come on, here we go. Here's my guest room. You can use it. That's the hospitality of the Middle East. Okay, so this inn is translated guest room. So let's try and understand. So here's what, here's what Luke says, is they go to Bethlehem and there's no room for them in the inn or in the guest room. And so Jesus is born and she places him in a manger. Now let's try to make sense of this again because then, okay, we're like, we still haven't proved it's not a barn. So in a traditional Middle Eastern home that you would find here, those home is, comparative, is composed of two main areas. You can throw the picture up here. It's a little sketch of it. Okay, you can see the guest room, which is on the far right. That would be the room that they would use sometimes, but if anyone came to stay with them, that's the room those people would get. There would be a large family room, and that's where the, the, the husband, the wife, the children would eat, they would sleep, they would cook, they would hang out. That was the large room. And then on the left is this stable area, that is connected to the house. Okay, now you'll see there's two mangers there. And so in a traditional Middle Eastern home, you would have this large family room. There would be mangers right here on the same level. And then on this level down, almost like it is on this stage, would be the stable. Go to the next picture if you will. Okay, so the guest room's on the right, middle room's in the middle, and then or the family room's in the middle, and then you step down, and here is the stable area. And so here's what would happen if you were a, a, a 
a person that owned this home, you didn't own land. This is, I mean, you're a poor Jewish family. If you're lucky, if you have a dairy cow. But if you do have a cow or a sheep, you would, at, during the day, take them and tie them up in a courtyard and give them some straw. And then at night, you would bring them in to the stable area, which was part of your home. It was usually a level down. Sometimes it was even below completely the floor level, depending on the landscape. They would come in at night for protection so that they would not be stolen or wander off. And that's where they would sleep. In the wintertime, it was very, it was very uh, they would bring them in here and it would help with the heat, to heat the house, just the body heat of the animals. Okay, so let's picture this. There's no room for them. Would you pick the, put the picture back up of the guest room? Yeah, thank you. Luke says there's no room for them in the cataluma or the guest room. So she gives birth and places him in a manger. Here's what it appears happened. There's already someone staying in the guest room, right? The sense is going on. The, the, the city is probably flooded with people. There's already some people staying there. So she is just included, Mary and Joseph, into the main family room. When it's time for her to give birth, the men would have been escorted out of the family room. She would have given birth. And looking at, okay, I just have this baby. Where do I put him? Oh, there's a manger right here. Let me put some straw on that. And that is where we, she would place Jesus. So Jesus is born in this guest room or in, in, this, in this house in Bethlehem, probably some one of David's or uh, uh, Joseph's relatives. And she, he's born and place him in a manger. The manger scene doesn't show up. The, what we think of the manger scene with like the, the barn and the, and the animals and all that doesn't show up till the 13th, 13th century. The guy named St. Francis of Assisi, he's about eight miles down before Giacomo lives in Italy. That's where the traditional idea of the manger scene developed. Now, I'm not telling you you have to throw away your manger scene, like enjoy it, enjoy your whole Christmas thing. By the way, is this, is this the appropriate time? I can't do this in December you guys all hate me. But I did a little research on the whole Christmas thing, all right? Um, so giving gifts. You know where giving gifts, this idea of like presents and all that, you know where it originated? Pagan winter festivals, okay? Because by the way, Jesus wasn't born on December 31st. I just hate to break it to you. You can still say happy birthday, Jesus, and all that stuff, but he wasn't born on December 31st. And the idea of Celebrating Christmas then, the 31st, not 25th. <laughs> I could see Jenny laughing at me. I knew I said something wrong. Uh, 25th, whatever. Uh, <laughs> the idea of giving gifts is this pagan holiday. And so whenever they decide, let's have Christmas on December 25th, they said, oh, this is kind of right in the same time, this winter pagan holiday. Let's also give presents at the same time. Uh, mistletoe. Any of you put mistletoe up in your home? Yeah, so that, the roots are there from, the roots of mistletoe is magic, by the way. Uh, so th there's this idea that when, uh, if you put mistletoe up, that there would be this healing medicinal power that would come over you. If you were sick, you could walk underneath the mistletoe. Kissing under the mistletoe came from battles. Uh, let me see what, a Scandinavian military custom is when they wanted a peace treaty, they were battling, they would take mistletoe, and the two generals would meet underneath the mistletoe as a sign of peace would kiss. Okay, so so far your, your lovely Christmas holiday is rooted in pagan festivals and battle generals kissing. Um, I, I, I think that 
Halloween's a Christian holiday compared to Christmas. But that's a whole, di- whole different thing. Uh, the Christmas tree shows up in 1510. Uh, Santa Claus, right? Good old Santa Claus is, uh, is uh, actually a guy named St. Saint, Saint Nicholas who's from modern-day Turkey. This is very interesting. This was actually kind of cool. So 4th century, this guy named St. Nicholas shows up. He's this great humanitarian. So they start celebrating this, this saint named St. Nicholas, kind of like we just celebrated St. Patrick. Now, this is really cool. So hanging stockings. Right, for, for Santa Claus to come visit the kids. Like, how does this play into it? Well, this is cool. So St. Nicholas uh, is known as this humanitarian. He rescues some girls who uh, were born into a poor family, and because their parents could not pay dowries for them to be married, were going to be forced to go into prostitution. So St. Nicholas sees this. He goes to these girls' dad, pays their dowries. These girls come and live with him at night, they hang up his, their stockings at the fireplace to dry because they wash them. That night, he comes along and drops in gold coins in each one of them as a kind of way to honor them and to say, here's something to become living on. And that's where the whole idea of stockings and St. Nicholas come into being. I don't know why that's important. I thought that was cool. But Luke is trying to help us understand the events around Jesus' birth. And so what I do want us to see is maybe take a step back and say, we have to be careful Look, reading a passage of scripture and just reading into it in our context of what would happen in 2018 if someone is born in a city and they don't have a place to live. This is a whole different world. And we see that at the birth of Jesus. So he's welcomed into some home and he's, bo- he's born and Mary takes him and places him in a manger. Now it's interesting First of all, the manger, there's a reason for that. You'll find out in just a second. The shepherd's going to be told you'll find a baby in a manger. So it's a very specific place for them to look. But let's even think about the idea of a manger. What kind of God, on making his entrance into the world, would be placed in a feeding trough? And what could that say about that God? See, here's the mystery of Jesus and the mystery that I hope we live in for the next year is you have this great glory of God in the flesh met with great humility. And that's what makes Jesus so difficult to understand because he is God and he has authority, he has power, yet he humbles himself. And his humility actually becomes his greatest strength. What kind of God, in making his entrance, would be placed in a feeding trough? And what does it say about that God? Verse 8. In the same region, so this is going on, while this is going on with Mary, in the same region, this area, there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now let's understand. So he switches from Mary and Joseph and this baby being born to these shepherds. Let's try to understand who shepherds were in this day. Again, we have this glorified version of shepherds, and they're part of the, the, the manger scene that we all have. Let's understand them. Shepherds are uh, the lowest of the socioeconomic scale. They make very little income. It is unskilled labor. They were uneducated people. Uh, compared with the kings that would come to visit Jesus, they are on the opposite end of the spectrum. They were viewed as wild, dishonest, unreliable 
Shepherds were not allowed to testify in court under Jewish law. They weren't allowed in court. They also, because they lived out with the animals, could not keep up with the cleanliness laws that the Pharisees, these Jewish leaders had. They had all kinds of rules about how often you have to wash your hands and what you have to do. The shepherds couldn't do that. They couldn't keep up with these laws. And so from the from a religious environment, they were seen as outcasts or outsiders. They were poor. They were not affluent. They, they were not well-spoken. They couldn't testify in court. They were not clean. And therefore, they are outcasts. And who does God come to to announce the birth of Jesus to these people? What could this say about the God that sent them? And this is one of the reasons, like I told you, Luke, like he's a skeptic and he writes to skeptics. It's one of the reasons, again, that brings me to the idea that this is like, if the, if the disciples get together after the death of Jesus and like, all right, let's make this whole thing up. And let's try to start this new religion. Let's just make it. If they do that, the angels aren't coming to shepherds. Shepherds were so unreliable, they couldn't testify in court. And so for a, a, a bunch of Jewish guys to get together and say, we need to make out where Jesus is the Messiah and make this whole story up. Okay, I got an idea. The angel came to shepherds. Shepherds, What? Like, they can't test them. No, like, they wouldn't have used shepherds. But these angels come to these shepherds who were seen as outcasts and announces that God has come near. And this introduces us to the idea of Luke. And Luke will talk about this for several chapters. And we'll call it this, the upside-down kingdom of God. Because if we think about a kingdom and creating a kingdom, creating a movement, we would think strong, educated, rich, powerful, on top. Low, uneducated, unskilled, weak, meek, on the bottom. But the kingdom of Jesus is upside down. It's flipped. That those who are seen as far off are actually right in the middle. Here's what I, Luke, or Jesus says this. When he gets a chance to read in the temple, he quotes Isaiah 61 the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus' ministry would not primarily be to the self-sufficient and self-righteous. It would be to the down, to the outcast, to the broken, to the poor, to the vulnerable. What does that say about the God that sent him. Because the shepherds were neither self-righteous nor were they self-sufficient. But the, here's what the, Luke says about them. When this happens, they, will, they were filled with great fear. So this glory of God is shown to them and because they are not self-righteous or self-sufficient, they are filled with this great fear or great humility an indicator of true faith is great humility. It's great humility. It's interesting that the ones that reject Jesus are the ones that, quote, knew the most about God. And the ones that accept Jesus are the down, the out, the outcast, the ones who know nothing, the ones who are seen as not good enough. They're the ones that accept him. 
True knowledge comes with great humility. There's a difference in knowledge of God and knowing God. Knowledge of God comes with puffed up pride. You need to know what I know. Knowledge of God comes with great humility and great fear. When I have knowledge of God, I see the glory of God and I become hyper aware of my shortcomings. Humility. Isaiah in the Old Testament gets this glimpse of God and here's what he says, quote, I'm ruined. I'm done. It's not that person. I'm finished. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. He's like, I'm done. True knowledge of God comes with great humility. One of the burdens I have for our church and the church is how often do we miss this? How often is our goal to prove ourselves right? To prove someone else wrong? To prove how they are far off from God and how we're close and how you need to live more like this? That's great, but here's what I look at Jesus. When I see Jesus, I I see true humility that comes from true knowledge of God. I see Jesus getting beaten and not fighting back. I see Jesus where people are accusing him of things and he doesn't try to defend himself. He just lives his life with true humility. Christians, church fault, is your life marked by true humility or is your life marked by trying to prove everyone else wrong? The mark of a believer is humility, compassion. As a matter of fact, here's what Galatians says. The mark of a believer, love, Joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the mark of a believer. If non-Christians were describing the American church, would the words they might use would be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Or might they use some other words? Have we somehow missed the message of Jesus and missed the God who sends Jesus, this humble person yet with glory, to lay in a manger? Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Remember, why did she put him in a manger? As a sign to the shepherds. So this angel says, they've just seen God, they're afraid, and this angel says, I love this, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. And this good news is great joy, and this great joy is for all people, that today God's Messiah has come. Now, what's it mean, like, fear But behold, I I bring you great joy for all people. But all people aren't going to receive this Savior. What is the angel talking about? The idea that Jesus came for all people, yet all people will not receive him. But 
that for all people, he, he gives this gift of this common grace of the Messiah being born. But to those who would trust him, he's their savior. That word savior is, means deliverer. It's, it's a word that has weight put to it. So again, a lot of times people, Jesus is seen as this great pacifist, moral teacher that just comes to love everyone. No, the angel says, no, unto you is born a savior. This word savior is this mighty word. It's the same idea of God saving Israel from in the Exodus. It's a word savior that talks about God saving people from their uncleanness. The word savior is a, a, a word talked about in the Old Testament of children of the needy being saved. And so Luke is saying, and these angels announced to these, to these shepherds, look, this Savior has come, and this Savior is going to save you spiritually. He's going to save you physically. He's going to save. He's going to take care of the down, the low, the oppressed. He is going to bring them all in, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the shepherds are scared, they're afraid. The angel says, fear not, I bring you good news. What's the good news? That God is pleased. And so here's what's gonna happen. This baby is born, this baby will live, and then this baby will die. And when this baby dies, when this man dies, all of the sin of the world will be placed upon him and in return now, this man will offer to people his righteousness. So how could God look at shepherds, outcasts, and say, God is pleased? Because God knows that he's going to send Jesus to absorb their punishment. Christians, God is pleased with you. Not because of you, but in spite of you. God is pleased. To you, believers, he would say, peace, great joy, great news. I am pleased. That we have in this Luke, this narrative in, in Luke chapter 2, this idea that outcasts are welcomed in, that the broken are welcomed in, the people that don't have it figured out are welcomed in, and to them, God would say, peace. Think of the freedom that brings. Christians, here's the deal. Peace to you means you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Like even this morning, coming to church, you don't have to prove yourself to God. I got, I got up early, God, I actually got here on time. Are you proud of me now? No, God would say peace to you. Why? Because he sees Jesus. Christians, we're freed from having to defend ourselves. Why? Because God says, peace to you because of Jesus. Christians, you're free from having to compare yourself. Why? Because God says, peace to you. Because God, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. Or here's what, how one writer in the New Testament will say, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for you, on our behalf, that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So in Christ, God looks at you and says, peace, good news, grace.
great joy. May you believe that for yourself. And now may that peace cause you this great humility and great compassion for those that are still far off. If Hill City ever is a place where we walk in, yep, we, we got it together. We've missed it. Oh, we've missed Jesus. Because Hill City should be a place where we walk in and like, man, welcome, because I need to be here just as bad as you do. But that God looks at us and says, peace. Man, I'm excited for us to get to know this guy named Jesus and get to see the upside-down kingdom that he brings and then wrestle with the implications because the implications are tough. But as we celebrate communion this morning, as we receive communion, God would come to you and he'd say, peace, peace to you. Welcome, broken. Welcome, outcast. Welcome, those that feel like they're far off. Faith, through faith in me, God would say, peace. Let's celebrate that this morning as we receive communion. Let's pray. God, may we receive your peace today. May we stop laboring for your peace today. May we stop laboring for our righteousness and may we simply receive it by faith. May humility mark us. May joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, may those things mark us as people who have been transformed by this radical love. In Jesus' name I pray.